0: Welcome to episode 40 of the Neural Network. Today, we're exploring a fun study that sheds light on the neural circuits that are involved in social interaction. So how do we actually initiate interactions with people around us? How do we maintain those interactions? And what's happening in our brain during those times? So whether you're a fellow neuroscientist, a student of the brain, or just someone intrigued in how our minds work, stay tuned. Stay tuned. All right, so our social interactions form the backbone of much of our daily experiences, right? So they shape our emotions, influence our decisions, and they play a crucial role in our overall well-being. But what actually happens in the brain during these interactions? How do the intricate networks of neurons, if you will, and brain regions orchestrate this complex dance of social behavior? This is actually the focus of the study that we're going to be discussing today. Uh, so, the study was published in the journal PLOS Biology, P L O S. And the study is titled Optogenetic and Chemogenetic Approaches Reveal Differences in Neuronal Circuits That Mediate Initiation and Maintenance of Social Interaction. Whew, so, it's a, a mouthful there, but I thought it was a really cool study. Um, and it's a, a cool way that shows how different neural circuits for behavior can be mapped and functionally tested. Uh, so the study takes us on kind of a journey into the, the brain's depths, if you will, into how social interactions are uh, occurring and what are the neural substrates. So it also explores how different neural circuits are responsible for initiating and maintaining our social interactions, and it dives deep into some of the molecular and cellular mechanisms that kind of underpin the this fundamental aspect of our lives. So why is it important... Social interaction, of course, isn't just a human trait, right? It's seen across the animal kingdom. It's vital for things like survival, reproduction, and, of course, overall health. Now, humans, in particular, thrive on social connections, and you can see that across different uh, animal species. Humans and primates, in particular, have very strong social connections compared to that of many other animals. Not to say that that's not the case in many other animals, because they do also have very strong social connections as well, but humans and primates in particular, uh, you know, we, we see those strong social connections. And the thing is, is, we can kind of embody those social connections because we can sort of put ourselves into the shoes of those animals that we're looking at and kind of understand what might be going on. So, our brains, you know, in particular are hardwired to seek and enjoy interaction with others. And this is thanks in part to something called the mesocortical limbic reward system. Now, the system which is deeply embedded into our brain is often activated during rewarding experiences, and this includes things like social encounters. So understanding how it works can offer a lot of insights into everything from everyday social bonding uh, to the intricacies of even disorders like autism that may have uh, different Phenotypic presentations when it comes to social interactions. So, within this paper, leading the research are neuroscientists Karolina Rojek Situ and Kasina Miza, uh, and their colleagues from the Nenki Institute of Experimental Biology, which is part of the Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw, Poland, along with collaborators from other esteemed institutions. Now, their work kind of represents a, a leap in our understanding of the, the neural underpinnings of social behavior, and they employ a lot of cutting-edge techniques in neuroscience, and so uh, the paper was kind of a perfect fit. So let's, uh, let's dive into the findings, unravel the complexities of the brain's social circuitry, and of course discuss uh, some of the implications of the research for our understanding of social behavior in general. So this is going to be a thought-provoking kind of journey through this, and uh, let's take a look. All right. So the study at hand utilizes rats is the primary animal model. Now, why rats? You might wonder. Rats are, of course, highly social animals, much like humans, and they actually form complex social hierarchies and exhibit rich social social behaviors, which makes them excellent subjects for studying social interactions. Uh, rats also share many genetic biological and behavioral characteristics with humans, especially in brain structure and function. So while they're not necessarily a small, long tailed, fuzzy human, more or less, we can gain a lot of insights into human social uh, behavior into looking at rats. And, uh, the similarities provide kind of a valuable window, if you will, into understanding many of the human brain mechanisms through, of course, a much more accessible and ethical research model. So as far as the, the actual techniques itself within the study, the study employs cutting-edge techniques uh, like optogenetics and chemogenetics. So these methods are, are kind of revolutionizing neuroscience as of late. So optogenetics involves the, the use of light to control cells and living tissue, uh, typically neurons that have been genetically modified to express light-sensitive ion channels allows researchers to uh, activate or inhibit specific neurons with literally an unprecedented level of precision. So I did a whole episode on optogenetics that you can go back and look at if you want to learn about some of the intricacies of what actually goes into creating optogenetic models and how we use them into lab uh, in order to study specific neuronal populations. Now chemogenetics on the other hand Uh, uses these engineered proteins that are activated by designer drugs, often uh, termed DRED receptors, which are just designer drug receptors. Uh, And and it's similar to optogenetics, but it allows uh, control over neuronal activity with specific chemical compounds instead of light compounds. So both of the techniques give the power to manipulate brain circuits in real time, which offers really incredible insights into their function. It's just that with opgenetics, you control the function of neurons using light, uh, whereas in chemogenetics, you control the function of neurons using uh, chemical, specific chemical compounds that are otherwise relatively inert. Um, But either way, you either use light or you use a chemical to activate specific uh, ion channels that are otherwise not activated by any other ligand. Uh, which gives you the ability to excite or inhibit different cells. So this study then uh, in particular specifically kind of zooms in on several different brain regions. It zooms in on areas called the ventral tegmental area or the VTA, the central amygdala or CEA, the anterior cingulate cortex, the ACC, and the orbital frontal cortex, the OFC. So each of these areas plays uh, a big significant role in processing rewards, emotions, decision making and central uh, in social behavior. So, uh the ventral tegmental area uh in particular is known for its role in dopamine release and reward processing. The central uh amygdala is involved in emotion and fear. The anterior cingulate cortex is um, in complex cognitive functions like empathy and impulse control, things like that. And then the orbital frontal cortex is in decision-making and reward evaluation. Funnily enough, we actually studied the orbital frontal cortex in goats when we were doing studies of chronic hypercapnia because we were studying how it affected their cognitive function uh, to see if exposure to high levels of CO2 actually reduces cognitive function, which is one of the things that is seen in patients with end-stage COPD and things like that and emphysema. And uh, and so, we wanted to know whether or not the hypercapnia itself had changes in the orbital frontal cortex, which then led to the cognitive dysfunction, which we were able to establish a model of cognitive dysfunction from hypercapnia and goats, uh, but we didn't see any changes in the orbital frontal cortex that were large enough to explain those things. So, that's just sort of trivial. Now, back to the the rat study at hand in terms of the experimental setup the researchers used kind of a fascinating approach, right? So, what they did, and I'll try to explain this the best I can. So, they began by separating cage mate cage mate rats, and so normally rats are housed in social housing, similar with mice. And so, you have to house them with other rats if they're rats, or if mice, you have to house them with other mice because they're social animals. Uh, and so, if you need to actually house these rodents. Uh, by themselves. With solo housing, there has to be some sort of justifiable reason as to do it, because for the welfare of the animal, they have to be in there with similar amounts of uh, rats or mice of the same species. So, um, these... Uh, what they did is they began by separating cage mate rats. So these rats were rats that were already living together and have established social bonds. And so they created a scenario where reestablishing these connections would be naturally sought after. So when you take litter mate mice or, or cage mate mice or rats and you separate them, what actually happens is that sort of this this drive to have this social interaction with them start to increase. And so you can socially isolate rodents and then you can put them back together and they're very driven to then socially interact with each other. So what, that's what they did. And so the rats were then subjected to social interaction tests after they've been separated to observe their behavior under different conditions. So during these tests, uh, specific brain circuits were either activated or inhibited Using these optogenetic and chemogenetic techniques that I mentioned earlier. And so the setup allowed the researchers to directly observe the effects of manipulating specific neural pathways on social behavior, which provides, you know, kind of clear insights into the, the neural mechanisms that drive these complex interactions. So, uh, this study, or, or this, uh, this part of the study, I should say, um, is crucial because it allows us to understand not only the what of the brain fact function and social behavior, but it understands the how and the why by selectively targeting these brain regions. So um, the researchers could then actually unravel, you know, the specific roles of each area in the brain and how it plays a role in initiating and maintaining social interaction. So to actually like get into how they were able to target these specific brain regions or why they targeted these specific regions, especially the... Uh, the CEA or the the central amygdala, which is what was very much highlighted in the studies. First, what they did is, is after separating the mice and then putting them back together, they were actually able to quantify how readily those mice interacted with each other. And so mice actually make like this 50 kilohertz sound uh, when they're excited and when they're um, interacting with one another, uh, whereas if they have aversive uh, types of behavior towards each other they'll make a sort of like a, i think it's like a 22 kilohertz sound which is sort of like this uh, disgruntled type of grumble versus that of the higher pitched 50 kilohertz one that they are happy to see each other it's kind of funny uh, but anyway so they were able to uh, look at how long it took for the mice after being separated to interact with one another and then how long they maintain that interaction, they could record the sounds coming out of the mice to see whether or not they were, you know, happy or dis- uh, angry to see each other, if you will. And what they did, you know, so after they separate the, or the, the rats, they put them back together. These rats are very driven to go see each other, to interact. What they did was they labeled the cells by using a activity-dependent labeler of the cells called FOS, it's a protein that's expressed when neurons are particularly active, Uh, And so, what they did is after the mice had this strong urge to interact with one another, they took the brains out. They looked in these different areas, specifically the central amygdala uh, was one that was very highly uh, expressive of that protein FOS, indicating that that area in particular was very much involved with initiating those social behaviors. And so, that's sort of how they like targeted in specific areas. And I kind of like that technique because not only does it... Uh, mark specific cells that you need to to mark, but it marks a heterogeneous population of cells because sometimes when you do optogenetics or chemogenetics, you oftentimes go after a specific uh, genotype, if you will, of cells. So we stimulate all the glutamatergic cells or all the, the substance P cells or all the dopaminergic cells. And that's great to understand how that type of cell controls specific brain regions, but In many complex behaviors, you don't use a single type of neuron in that behavior. It's oftentimes this heterogeneous mix of neurons of some are dopaminergic, some are GABAergic, glycinergic, glutamatergic, everything in between. And so with these activity-dependent markers, you're able to actually just specifically control those neural all of the neurons within a certain pathway that are active during a specific behavioral response. Now, it comes with nuances because in a typical neural network, some neurons are activated, some are inhibited. And so, when you go in with these optogenetics or chemogenetics, typically you activate all the cells or you inhibit all of the cells. And so, that's not always how it works. But again, it's the you're always going to be limited by techniques in order to understand different areas of the brain. And some techniques have certain advantages and other ones have other advantages. And so this gives you the ability to mark heterogeneous populations of neurons to create whole neural ensembles that are involved in specific behaviors, but you have to either activate all of them or inhibit all of them. But either way, it's a good step to try to figure out which, you know, parts of the brain are actually being active. So speaking of the areas of the brain that are active, I kind of glossed over a little bit the areas that they were looking at uh, in relation to this paper. But uh, the first area, uh, the ventral tegmental area, it's a a key part of the brain's reward system. It's known for, I said, it's dopamine release. And of course, dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's often associated with feelings of pleasure and reward. Uh, So the VTA's activity is is crucial, I guess you could say, in, in motivating behavior by signaling the reward value of stimuli, which in the context of social interaction can be interaction with others. So think of it as kind of like your uh, neural cheerleader, if you will, encouraging social engagement by providing um, rewarding feedback. Then one of the other areas, the central amygdala, the CEA. So traditionally the amygdala is known for its role in processing fear and emotional responses, actually. However, uh, its central region, the the central amygdala, CEA, has a more nuanced role especially in social behavior so it's involved in evaluating the emotional significance of social stimuli and modulating responses to these stimuli so essentially the the central amygdala helps to determine how we emotionally react to the presence or action of others so it's actually shaping the social behaviors accordingly uh, next, the anterior cingulate cortex, this is a region uh, is is a powerhouse, if you will, when it comes to cognitive function. So it's involved in a variety of complex processes, including decision making, empathy, uh, impulse control, emotion. But the anterior cingulate cortex is particularly interesting in the context of social interaction because it helps us to understand and respond to the emotional states of others. So it plays a crucial role in forming social bonds and navigating many social complexities. And then finally, uh, the orbital frontal cortex, the OFC, this is a a region, it's it's considered to be pivotal in decision-making and reward-based learning. So it it helps to evaluate different options and outcomes, including those in social scenarios. So the orbital frontal cortex is, is, (coughs) excuse me, kind of crucial in understanding the value of social interactions. So it helps us decide, for instance, whether or not to engage in conversation, or how to respond in a social setting based on the perceived rewards or outcomes of these interactions. So, each of these areas plays a distinct yet uh, interconnected role in shaping our social behaviors. And so, uh, by examining these regions together, the st- the, the study in that I was that I'm, we're talking about offers sort of uh, very invaluable insights into the uh, complex neural tapestry, I guess you could say, that underlies many of our social interactions. So diving into the actual experiments themselves, the first experiment then centered on the central amygdala, or the CEA again. So researchers used the optogenetics to activate the neurons of the central amygdala of the rats. And so the hypothesis was pretty straightforward. If the central amygdala plays a role in social interaction, then of course, stimulating it should increase such behavior. And indeed, that's what they found. So upon activation, the rats exhibited a significant increase in social contact. So the rats were actually contacting each other more than they were uh, in control studies where they didn't activate those neurons. And so the outcome uh, positions that the central amygdala is not just a, is a center for processing emotions, but it really is sort of a crucial area for encouraging social engagement. Not necessarily maintaining engagement, but encouraging the actual engagement in social behavior, which is kind of interesting when you think about, you know, the, the diverse array of willingness to interact socially across different individuals or even across the same individual. You know, how likely are you to engage in an interaction with someone that you may or may not know can vary wildly depending on what's going on during the day or even across different people. You see some people that are very extroverted and are very willing to engage with anyone at any time. You see some people that are more on the introverted type that are more likely to not want to necessarily engage in random encounters or uh, even have a lot of social interactions. And so it's it would be kind of interesting to see how much of the variability in some of those behaviors can be explained by excitability states or reactivity of the neurons in these areas and even how sort of the state dependencies of these neural networks can ultimately influence how willing someone is to uh, engage in different social behaviors. Next up uh, in the study they studied the central amygdala the VTA projections and so they did a series of different tracing studies where you can inject different enterograde or retrograde tracers into certain neuronal populations and those Tracers then dive down the projections of those neurons and then they label the subsequent nuclei of uh, which contain all of the neurons of where the certain neuronal populations are projecting to. So if you have neurons projecting from uh, region A to region B, you can inject a enterograde tracer into region A and it'll label all the cells in region B conversely if you use a retrograde tracer you can inject that tracer into region b it'll climb up and it'll label all the cells in region a and so this is one of the ways that you can get a um, indication of where different neuronal populations are projecting to one another or how different brain regions are actually able to um, effectively communicate with one another through electrical chemical means and so one of the Neural connections areas that they were studying was the central amygdala to the ventral tegmental area. And the hypothesis was that this pathway, that this pathway is crucial for maintaining ongoing social interaction. So, not necessarily initiating social interaction, but another key facet of social behavior is not just initiating the social interaction, but actually maintaining the social interaction. So when you observe individuals and you quantitate how likely they are to engage and to keep that social interaction such, uh, a lot of it comes down to how willing these animals are to start either reproducing certain behaviors of one another, how likely they are to keep their attention, how likely they are to sort of mold their ongoing behaviors to that of the person that's being conversed with. And so there's a lot that goes on to that. And so the idea was that there might be different brain regions that are involved in one, initiating the social contact, yes, but also a different brain region involved in actually maintaining that social interaction. And can you get sort of different rewarding stimuli uh, by initiating them versus maintaining that. And so by selectively inhibiting this CEA-VTA projection using chemogenetics, the uh, what they found was they found a, a, a marked decrease in the sustained social interaction of the rats. So it didn't necessarily change the probability of the rats to uh, initiate contact with one another, but it reduced the time at which the rats would interact with each other once the interaction was already engaged. And so that result kind of shows the importance of this CEA-VTA connection um, for not just initiating, but, but really maintaining the social behavior over time. Conversely, another one of the experiments that they did was looking at the VTA's projections to the anterior cingulate cortex and the orbital frontal cortex. So they hypothesized that the the, these dopaminergic pathways initiate social interaction. So using the optogenetics, they activated these pathways and monitored the onset of social behavior. And so the findings were pretty clear that activation led to an increase in the initiation of social interaction. So uh, they demonstrated that there's a critical role of dopamine in particular that's released from the VTA that uh, helps to kickstart social engagement, which highlights uh, kind of a key neural starting point for social behavior. So these VTA projections from the anterior to the anterior cingulate cortex and the orbital frontal cortex is this dopaminergic pathway that leads you to Uh, engage in social behaviors and then this this um, cea vta pathway is more involved in actually maintaining those um, social interactions moving on from there uh, the study also dissected the distinct roles of the orbital frontal cortex central amygdala and anterior cingulate cortex central amygdala pathway so (laughs) just try to keep all of them straight. I know it's tough. But uh, in in separate experiments, these pathways were manipulated to observe their influence on social interaction. So the results revealed a, kind of a nuanced picture that the orbital frontal cortex to the central amygdala pathway influenced the initial choice to engage in social interaction, while the anterior cingulate cortex uh, to the central amygdala pathway was more involved in the ongoing maintenance of these interactions. So um, again, you're sort of starting to notice a trend that these findings kind of offer a refined understanding of how different brain circuits contribute to separate phases of social behavior. So the experiments kind of collectively, if you will, paint a detailed picture of many of the neural underpinnings of social behavior, um, you know, the precise optogenetics and chemogenetics that was used allowed the researchers in the study to manipulate specific neural pathways uh, and observe the resulting changes in behavior. Uh, and by doing this, they were very much able to find that there's different pathways. And I think this is the main take-home point of this study is that there are different pathways in the brain that are involved in, one, initiating social behavior with other animals, and two, maintaining that social behavior once it's already started. And so I think that's the main take-home point of this. And you'll also notice if you look at the paper that there's... They also tested it, uh, how these brain pathways were involved with uh, food reward processing as well. And I think uh, some of these were just, you know, cool control studies to show that there's overlapping cells that this area in particular isn't just dedicated to social interactions. Because as we're finding out with many different distinct social behaviors uh, in animals, that many of these pathways overlap with other um. Behaviors such as feeding, uh, for example, in this case. And so uh, the same neurons that are involved with one behavior can be involved in another, and it just depends on the way that they're activated and where their distinct um, projections go to. So now the fun part, what does it actually mean? Uh, you know, the, the insights from the study are certainly not confined to the academic realm of neuroscience. They have uh, kind of far-reaching implications, if you will, in understanding and potentially treating disorders characterized by challenges in social interaction, things like autism, spectrum disorders, social anxiety, and understanding the detailed mapping of these neural circuits that are involved in these different social behaviors could really guide the development of targeted therapies, which potentially offer new avenues for intervention. Because when it comes to personalized medicine and trying to treat different behavioral um, conditions – the more specific that you can be about understanding the pathway that is involved in creating these different um, disorders, the more specific you can be about treating it, because a lot of treatments right now are just broad-scale treatments where, yeah, you're, you might be manipulating the neurons of these pathways, but there's nothing specific about it that you're doing. You're, you're manipulating any of the neurons that have, let's say, the certain channel expressed if you're giving a certain drug. so. Uh, understanding the role of, for example, like the central amygdala in processing social interaction could lead to strategies aimed at enhancing the central amygdala function in individuals who struggle with social engagement. All right, similarly, the distinct roles of the orbital frontal cortex projecting to the central amygdala and the anterior cingulate cortex projecting to the central amygdala pathway uh, in initiating and maintaining social interactions could provide potential targets for therapeutic intervention, Uh, Perhaps even using things like non-invasive brain stimulation techniques. So individuals that have a tough time initiating social interactions, you might be able to stimulate one part of the brain to try to uh, help mitigate some of the maybe social anxiety that might come along with uh, having not enough activation of this brain region just to promote social interactions, especially when they're in a situation like a networking event or something where they're uh, not forced, but they're they're more akin to have the social interactions pop up. And similarly, um, individuals that might have a problem with maintaining social um, interactions once they've already started, they, you know, sometimes once you've initiated that conversation with someone, um, a a wave of anxiety starts to build up. And so perhaps modulating some of these brain regions might be able to mitigate, uh, at least for individuals where that sort of anxiety comes to the point where it's debilitating in their ability to function. So of course, the beyond clinical applications, the findings certainly enrich our understanding of the social brain, which is always interesting. So they highlight uh, the complexity and the sophistication of these neural networks that, that drive much of our social interactions. And so the knowledge adds depth to our understanding of human behavior and of course offers insights into everything from you know, everyday social bonding to the intricacies of social dynamics in in large groups, and the study also uh, sets kind of a precedent for future research. So it exemplifies the power of combining advanced techniques like optogenetics and chemogenetics with behavioral neuroscience. So future studies can certainly build on this foundation, exploring other brain regions uh, and circuits involved in in social behavior, and perhaps even extend these insights into more complex uh, social scenarios. So. Uh, in closing, kind of a short episode, but the research is uh, a vivid reminder, if you will, of the, what do you say, the intricate dance between our brain and our social world. So it really highlights the importance of neuroscience in particular and unraveling the mysteries of human behavior. And of course, it opens up exciting possibilities for enhancing our social well-being. So thanks for sticking around uh, to li- to learn about the social interactions in our brain. So uh www.theneuronetwork.org, Apple, Spotify, RSS.com is where you can find it. So stay tuned for next episode. All right, bye.